You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, CEO of Evolve ETFs, and I'm joined by Darren Cabral, who's the co-founder and CEO at Clientelligent. Uh, Darren's also been a good friend of mine for a number of years, so Darren, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Raj. Thanks for having me. So you and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, disruption, and one of, your, one of your comments was you really dislike uh, that word. So why don't we start there? And why don't you uh, explain to everyone why you're not a big fan of the word disruption? It's not that I'm a big fan of uh, the word disruption. I just find that it is so overused and so overhyped that when I meet with companies and, you know, one of the first things out of their mouths is that, hey, you know, we're new and we're going to disrupt uh, the pet food industry, you know, instantly I, you know, I want to roll my eyes. But in in many cases, I don't think it's uh, the fault of many startup companies. A lot of these companies go through incubators, and they're really trained to come up with a short elevator pitch uh, to capture the attention of VCs and other potential investors. But in my mind, to qualify as being disruptive or to truly be disruptive, a company needs to uh, supply a product or service that radically changes how users of that product or service behave or engage. And I think there's a real tangible, uh, measurable benefit uh, to these types of, of products or services, and it they verge on unseating the traditional way of using a service or product. They're industry game changers that can you know, potentially kill off the incumbents in that space. I think very, very few companies can meet that definition. They, they don't just turn the dial, uh, they disruptors replace it completely. Do you pervert, prefer the word evolution? I think so. Uh, I think that's a much better way of describing uh, a lot of these businesses. And I, I think that's, you know, while very few companies meet that standard of definition uh, of disruption, uh, it doesn't make them bad companies. You know, as uh, both a private investor and a founder of a startup, you know, I meet and interact with a lot of really great companies. Not all of them are disruptors. I think what makes uh, a lot of these companies really great is that they are problem solvers. They're tackling real problems, the ones that keep CEOs of companies uh, up at night. And, you know, while they may not necessarily be disruptive, uh, they certainly can help solve or alleviate um, critical problems that can help their clients leap over roadblocks or give them a real competitive advantage and, in essence, helping them to uh, evolve. Um, I really like problem solvers who have solutions that have a direct line to helping uh, their clients generate more top and bottom line growth. And, uh, these are companies that help industries evolve uh, by making the products and services they offer by the incumbents better or making delivery of their uh, products and services better or help them get better at servicing their customers. So in a way, yeah, I think uh, evolutionary is a much better word. Okay, I will try not to use the word uh, disrupt or disruption. You're, 
you're going to have to completely change the name of your podcast <laughs> on a go-forward basis. I'm sorry, Rod, but it's, it's got to be done. Easy, easy, enough to, easy enough to do. So how is the financial service, because I know you're obviously very involved in the financial services industry uh, from a technology perspective, how is that industry uh, evolving? You know, I think uh, I think broadly speaking, financial services has been at the forefront of uh, a lot of evolution and some disruption. Um, I think I think financial services companies, if if they're not talking about adopting evolutionary technologies, they'll find themselves uh, well behind their their competition. And the companies that we certainly engage with. Uh, and talk a, a lot about with, uh, you know, embracing these technologies is is high on their agendas. So, like, what? Like, give, give me some examples of what is some of the uh, more technological advancements that the banks are uh, engaged in? Because I know, obviously, uh, BMO's result, Bank of Montreal's results came out uh, last week, and one of the comments from the CEO, Daryl White, was that. Uh, you know, they don't think that they've done a good enough job of embracing uh, digital technology or digital banking uh, within within uh, their their firm. So, can you give kind of like a thirty second overview of what that means for the banks? Like, what are they not necessarily doing that they should be doing, and that they're perhaps investing or incubating at the moment? Yeah, I think uh, one of the I think one area that has certainly evolved more than uh, other areas or lines of business within the bank is loan adjudication. You know, before you go into the bank branch, meet with a uh, bank manager, give them your pitch for your business, or uh, maybe it's, it's for a personal loan on, on why the bank should lend you money. Now loan adju- adjudication happens a lot quicker. Uh, uh, within some banks, uh, they've done a really good job of tying uh, or gathering customer information, uh, seeing uh, a lot of the financial data that exists for that particular client, and can you know quite rapidly make a decision to uh, give that client a loan uh, or not. Uh, you've even seen RBC advertise, you know, get a mortgage in, in 60 seconds or less, and I think. Uh, all that is is really good, and I think a lot of banks are ahead there. I think where a lot of banks, are uh, not just banks, but financial services, uh, are behind are looking at the whole picture of their clients uh, and matching clients with the right product at the right time. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that just information uh, that exists within these large organizations are kind of spread all over the place and tying it together uh, isn't all this so easy, and they certainly have to do it within the confines of uh, privacy laws that exist, uh, and for good reason, uh, in Canada. Right. So, moving beyond banking, um, why don't you talk a little bit about what Client Intelligent does uh, within the financial services industry? Uh, yeah, sure. Let me give you uh, just a little bit of background. Um, I spent the majority of my career uh, in financial services, principally with Connor Clark and Lund, uh, which is Canada, which is one of Canada's largest uh, investment managers. And uh, while there, I was actively involved in managing and distributing retail investment products. And uh, after my partners and I sold our business, uh, I thought a lot about uh, the applications of uh, artificial intelligence to 
uh, distributing retail investment products. And and you know what keeps fun company CEOs up at night, Raj? Do, do you know any fun company CEOs? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I can tell you what I often hear uh, from uh, bankers, bank CEOs, is what uh, keeps them up at night is a potential breach of data. There's that. There's that. But I think one of the core issues is uh, how am I going to get the next dollar of AUM and how am I going to keep the AUM that I have, right? So that's your concern is a, is a valid one, not the one I was looking for, but this was the uh, – I think that's, uh, that's a, a primary concern. Competition for that next dollar uh, has never been more intense than it has been today. And, and those are the kind of problems that, that client intelligence were focused on. And really, the inspiration for for what we do is from companies like Amazon and Netflix that, you know, they collect vast amounts of data to figure out what products or content uh, its customers are likely to be interested in and positioning those products uh, such that it's kind of the first thing their customers see when they visit their sites. Uh, and, and product recommendations are massive. They account for about 35% of Amazon sales. Uh, for Netflix, it says it prevents about a billion dollars in lost subscriptions by creating you know, these personalized landing pages for every customer so that they can quickly get to the content uh, they're going to be interested in rather than having to search for it. The longer it takes them to search for a show they want to watch, uh, the less interest they have in their product. And, and so... In my mind, I thought mutual fund companies, well, look, they collect massive amounts of data. Uh, on their, and there's massive amounts of data on their products that exist going back decades. And in most cases, they do nothing with this data. So our hypothesis was that we could probably build a deep learning model that could consume all this data and identify which advisors were likely to buy in the near future and what products they would likely be interested in buying. Uh, and the same for redemptions. So... In other words, we could give uh, data-driven leads, high-quality data-driven leads, to a salesperson at these fund companies that they could rely on uh, and have a much higher conversion rate. Um, so uh, we, we tried this out. We partnered with a really large Canadian mutual fund company, um, and we had a pretty good success rate at doing uh, just that, identifying those advisors that were likely to transact and uh, what products they were likely to transact in. And we are now working with uh, a few of the largest fund managers that exist uh, in Canada that started to embrace the idea that, you know what, deep learning uh, and machine learning could have a uh, tremendous impact on their business. So give me an example, like what would be a signal for, let's say, the fund company uh, to know or feel some level of confidence that, you know, a specific advisor is about to buy one of their – might be interested in one of their, their funds. Like, without obviously naming names of the fund companies that you're working with, like, give, give, give me a tangible example of it. Yeah, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, uh, we look at a number of different data sets. Uh, and it's, it's everything you, um, would think of, right? So we look at historical transactions and products. We look at, uh, the various attributes of products, uh, you know, whether it be performance, uh, risk, uh, how it stacks up relative to its peers. 
we look at the level of interaction that fund company has had with a particular advisor. Uh, we look at the demographics that exist in, in particular areas uh, because everything that we do and model is at the advisor level. Um, and we synthesize all that information. And our, our deep learning model, you know, consumes, you know, uh, decades worth of this data and it, it trains on it. Uh, we validate it and then we blind test it whereby we make predictions over uh, various time periods and we compare our predictions to what actually happened. And our hit rate is, is or our, our level of precision uh, is quite strong. Uh, and there's no one thing, Raj, that is a leading indicator for every advisor, again, because we model at the advisor level, we look at you know, deep lear our deep learning model figures out what is relevant to that particular advisor, right? And are those, are we seeing, is it seeing a pattern uh, that has existed in the past uh, recurring right now? And how can we capitalize on that? Um, and so that, that's kind of the, the main, uh, the generalized way of how that works. And we've been able to kind of build upon that. So, okay, now we start looking at advisors that, you know, maybe used to buy um, that fund's uh, company's products but haven't for a long time. We call these lapsed advisors. And, all right, are the conditions in place whereby, you know, with an intervention from a salesperson, the probability of them reengaging would increase significantly. So we generate those types of leads as well. We also look for... You know, we pour through the data to see, okay, who are the real centers of influence um, that exist within the advisor community? It's not always the corner office advisor with the big book of business. In many instances, it's that new young keener who's doing the product work and has, has earned the uh, respect uh, of his peers. And, you know, so he may come in early with smaller tickets, but, you know, there's this kind of ripple effect that takes place. Okay. So let's uh, pivot a little bit off of um, the financial. I mean, I think that the, the financial services industry is obviously changing quite a bit. And if you look at other parts of the world in terms of how banking is working, especially countries like China uh, with mobile banking and mobile pay and everything, I mean, it's definitely uh, it's evolving, as, uh, as you like to say. Um, but what, what other industries are you seeing uh, kind of over the next five years to ten years that are really going to change significantly from the use of deep learning, AI, data aggregation, and so on? I think any industry, every industry is up for grabs. Uh, anywhere where you can find vast repositories of data, uh, machine learning can certainly find something new. I think, uh, you know, outside of financial services, I think one of the, the best use cases for uh, machine learning is in pharma, right? There are all, there are countless, uh, you know, uh, you know I met with a company this morning that looks at different protein uh, compounds to uh, for drug discovery. And the number of permutations that exist are, you know, beyond the capability of, you know, traditional computing. And so I think that'll be, a, that's a tremendous use case. And, you know, I think when you look at some of the other companies that have been disruptors, you know, it's it's really hard to predict, you know, where disruption is going to happen, right? So who would have thought before Uber that the, you know, the, the, the taxi industry was a right for disruption? You know, I don't think a lot of people would have. 
so it's you know in my mind those are you know outside of financial services and and pharma those those are kind of the, the key areas to look. Yeah, I often I mean one of my favorite lines that I hear out there is you know we tend to uh, overestimate what's going to happen over the next one or two years and we tend to underestimate what's going to happen uh, over the next five or ten and. You know, I think that I think you're right. I think the healthcare industry is definitely uh, one of those areas that is going to change a lot in terms of um, in terms of targeted diagnosis and avoiding more misdiagnosis, as well as uh, um, uh, prescriptions and so on and so forth. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, an interesting uh, an interesting industry. And then, of course, I do think that the the, the transportation industry is going to evolve a lot with uh, potentially self-driving cars in the next five to, to ten or seven years, uh, and and obviously the growing electrification. So besides uh, healthcare, any other industries that you feel are are uh, are changing a lot over the next few years? Uh, I think many, a lot of the different ways we communicate, uh, which is which I know is a broad, uh, yeah, it covers a lot of different areas, but I think. I think that's going to change a lot too. You know, a great example is uh, Slack, right? Most people, I don't think, have heard of Slack. But if you work in tech, most pe- most people that work in tech are using Slack. Right? It, within within my own company, you know, my partner is and I. That's the primary way we communicate with each other. We don't send each other emails. Yeah. Right. Everything that we do happens through uh, Slack, which is kind of a, it's a enterprise, you know, messaging uh, tool that, we, you know, we can chat in real time with each other. We can share files. We can even have uh, phone calls and video calls uh, and collaborate on documents, right? So we do everything within Slack. Uh, it's, you know, the only time we're emailing each other is when we're copying each other on uh, emails to people outside of our organization. But everything happens within Slack. And I think you know, I think you can see Slack extend to, or, or various companies like Slack extend to uh, social, right? Just, you know, they become, you know, they're the primary way of, of how we communicate uh, and share information with each other. Um, and I don't think there's been, you know, anything that's that's quite emerged like that just yet. Um, I think other companies like, you know, Ritual. Ritual is, you know, one of my favorite disruptors. And, again, probably not well known outside of, uh, select pockets in, in Canada and the U.S., but uh, it's, you know, if you've ever waited in line at a food court to, you know, to grab a meal uh, and you're impatient like I am, uh, you know, you want Ritual. You know, Ritual is an app on your phone where you can, uh, you know, order your food in advance, and by the time you get to the food court, it's there waiting for you. It's absolutely brilliant. Like, it's so simple, yet, you know, I can't, uh, I can't live without it. I mean, it's, it's just become essential. Just like, you know, Uber has become essential to me. I, you know, when I, I can't remember in the past three or four years where I've said, you know, I'm going to call a taxi. It's just, I'm going to grab an Uber. It's the way it is. Well, it's just, you know, all of this, all of these uh, tools are just there to ultimately make our life more efficient and more productive. And convenient. Exactly. And convenient, for sure. Um Go back to let's go back to the investment management industry that's obviously near and dear to both of our hearts. Sure. Uh, I, I get asked this question quite a bit, 
and it seems to be on a lot of discussions either with journalists or with on panels. Do you think that AI is far enough along whereby it can uh, it can be utilized to manage portfolios um, for investors or uh, manage funds uh, on behalf of investors? Uh, here's my view. While I think uh, AI could probably do a good job of uh, picking stocks and building portfolios, I don't think it should be done uh, without a human being involved. Yeah, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and you know, I think uh, even when you think about robo advisors, I, you know, I think they're great. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I truly do. There, there's a, it addresses, I think, a key need for select demographics, but. You know, when I think about robo-advisors, and uh, they've only existed in the confines of a bull market where, you know, clients uh, of robo-advisors have, you know, only known, you know, positive returns for the most part. They've never had these, you know, periods that, you know, were a little scary, you know, or a bear market of any sort. And I think, you know, while the user experience has been, you know, generally good, um, uh, for, for robo-advisors. I don't know if that will be the case, uh, you know, in a prolonged, you know, scary bear market. And, and the reason why I say that is, you know, people are emotional about their money. Uh, and that's where, you know, being able to talk to a human and, and have a person, an advisor, really guide them through, uh, you know, those, those scary times um, is undervalued. And I think right now it's undervalued simply because, you know, we haven't experienced it uh, for a while now. Uh, but, you know, it comes inevitably. The market doesn't just always go up. There will be that time. And, and so it will be interesting to see um, how people react uh, that are with robo-advisors in, in that type of environment. And so, like, you can't just trust you know, while you can certainly, you know, um, you know, I think using, you know, AI and machine learning to do your portfolio allocation, they could probably do just as good of a job as uh, as a human can. Uh, the the emotional aspect to it uh, is, I think, where it'll lack, right? So you can't just say, you know, you know, my portfolio is down 20%, you know, the market's down, you know, 20% too. Um, and, you know, there, there isn't going to be an algorithm that's going to, like, you know, be able to comfort you and, and, and get you to stay invested uh, because, you know, instinct often is to kind of yank your money out at precisely the wrong time, you know, uh, you know when the market's kind of bomb, vomiting, uh, bo- bottoming, excuse me. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, having a human that can keep you invested and, and walk you through those tough, tough times is, is critical. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I I completely agree with you. I first of all, you're absolutely right. Money is an emotional topic for a lot of people, but I also think when I look at it from a fund management perspective, not so much as an individual client management perspective, but you know, I think AI can be very useful as a tool within portfolio management, especially on the quant side, but. I think for portfolio managers, they need to sit across from companies' management 
and get a feel for what their go-to-market strategy might be or what their, uh, or, you know, what happened last quarter in terms of their potentially poor financial results and get a read of the body language, which to me I think is uh, super important that, you know, obviously AI cannot uh, substitute. So I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, no, 100%. So before we close off, you want to provide us uh, with a couple of predictions uh, maybe specifically tied to the financial services industry over the next few years? Ooh, predictions. Um, I can give you, yeah, broadly speaking, I think that, you know, the adoption of evolutionary or, or disruptive technologies uh, will continue. Uh, and I think uh I think it has to continue if, if these companies want to compete and survive. Uh, I think I think it's good for uh, consumers uh, because a lot of the the adoption of these technologies are really geared towards uh, winning business, right? And I think the way you win business is by addressing by better addressing uh, the needs of, of consumers, right? So. You know, again, like uh, I saw a neat little product where, you know, uh, a bank is rolling out solutions that kind of match clients with lending products when they predict that particular client may experience a cash flow shortfall. So I expect to see more of that. And I expect uh, you'll see more and more products uh, become more easily accessible uh, to uh, consumers. Uh, like with getting a mortgage in, in 60 seconds or less, uh, or certainly make these products uh, more transparent uh, and certainly lower cost as well. Um, so I think that is the kind of general outlook uh, that, that you'll see. And I think I think a lot of banks are doing some, and a lot of financial services companies are doing some some really cool things that will probably continue. I mean, there's one bank that. Uh, it's RBC that, you know, they, they talked about going beyond banking where, you know, they have a ventures group that are investing and, and buying companies that have absolutely nothing to do with banking, right? So they've got a company called Drive that, you know, keeps track of uh, recalls on your car. Again, nothing to do with banking, uh, but it's a neat little service that, that Drive offers. And, you know, it's just another way of engaging with consumers. And, you know, the hope is that down the road, there is a opportunity to convert that customer to, I don't know, maybe to an RBC insurance uh, customer uh, for, for auto insurance. So I would expect more of that. All right. Darren, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Evolve ETFs podcast. If you like this podcast, please like this post. Subscribe to this channel by clicking on the subscribe button. Ensure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting our website, EvolveETFs.com. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.